The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Julia Borston, and you're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Good Friday morning and welcome to Tech Check. I'm Deirdre Boza with John Fort and Julia Borston. Carl has the morning off today. Hey, Netflix investors, don't look up. The stock is getting absolutely crushed this morning with Wall Street turning bearish, dragging tech lower. Netflix shares on pace for their worst day in a decade. The Nasdaq is on pace for its worst week since March of 2020. Plus, more from Intel CEO Pat Gelsinger this hour with the president set to make an announcement on chip production any minute. That's coming up, too. And just like that, more pain for Peloton. Company halting production as demand disappears. Is a possible buyout ahead? We will discuss all of that, John. Yes, indeed. And let's start with Netflix. The streamer 24% lower at the moment after reporting Q4 results. EPS beat revenue was in line, but the company says competition's weighing on growth. For the full year, Netflix saw 18 million net ads compared to 37 million a year ago. Guidance, the big miss. Analysts had been looking for a subscriber growth of about 7 million, but Netflix says expect the number closer to 2.5. More than eight Wall Street firms downgrading the stock this morning. And a key question, has the growth story shifted for Netflix? Uh, with us now to discuss editor-in-chief of The Verge, Nilay Patel. Nilay, um, I- I'm thinking about this in context. Of course, I want to talk about Netflix, but you know, Peloton is down, as we will talk about. Zoom Uh, Also, DoorDash, all of those kind of at or below where they were at the beginning of the pandemic. The world was supposed to have changed was the narrative that we were hearing. Uh, Not only uh, were these pandemic stocks, but but they had all this growth potential going forward. What do you think is going on here? I think it's a combination of of two things, actually. One, the, the bigger picture the pandemic return to something that feels like normal, although maybe not, is happening. So the big bets that company like Peloton made or that investors in Netflix made, that the whole world was changed, movie theaters are going to be closed forever, gyms are never coming back, those bets are kind of paying off not as anyone expected. So I think that's the bigger picture, right? Some of these trends did not stay permanent. The more specific picture for a company like Netflix is that the streaming wars are ongoing at just a furious clip. So consumers now, when they set up a smart device or a smart TV, infinite options, lots of free options now. You see a lot of ad supporting video on demand. So there's just lots of places for consumer attention to go. That default position for Netflix is not as assured as it once was. And I think as they look for growth, their cost of content acquisition continues to skyrocket because everyone else is looking for inventory too. Yeah, so but- I think there's, there's two things happening at once. But that's so short term. I mean, uh, yes, um, we knew that these there could be some rockiness in the subs overall. But if people really believe that there's this ongoing shift toward uh, streaming overall, toward entertainment itself being digital, then Netflix's subscriber base and its uh, track record for creating original content 
should put it in a good strategic uh, position going forward. So having it sell all the way down to levels, you know, pre-pandemic or beginning of the pandemic, th that seems to me to be saying something different, maybe. Yeah, I'm not going to tell you I think there's a, a tremendously rational connection between the movement in the stock today and Netflix's returns, its results, right? Subgrowth is going up. They just raised prices. Revenue is up in a lot of their territories. They have a gaming uh, a division that's just getting off the ground in Android phones. There's a good story there. There's excellent leadership. There's good content. They just had their two biggest movies ever. I, I'm not sure there's a rational connection between where the company is and where the, the stock is right at this second, but I will say Netflix has to execute uh, in a much more pressure-packed environment than it ever has faced in the past, I don't know, five years. Yeah, but Neelay, as we look at the stock sell-off, there's this bigger question of whether Netflix is more of a tech company or more of a media company and which valuation it should be trading at. Um, one thing that was interesting on the call last night is Reed Hastings talked about these three potential growth drivers for the future. He talked about gaming, which you just mentioned, as well as consumer products and experiences. I'm wondering what you think about at what point those three things will actually start to impact subscriber numbers, could actually potentially draw subscribers or have a meaningful impact on churn? Yeah, I think that tech company versus content company, they have two CEOs. They have a tech CEO and they have a content CEO. They want to be perceived as both. I think the way to think about it is on the distribution side, they get the economy of scale that software provides, right? In a way that few companies had before, now other companies want. They can put that app anywhere they want, and they have done a good job. On the media side, they have all the media economics. So when you go to games and you say, okay, now the games are commerce engines, and we can sell things inside of the games, that's a great business to be in, has software economies of scale, has software margins. So that has to pay off. I don't think we're going to see it pay off until they can figure out how to get on Apple devices, which is a big sticky wicket. They're on Android. Getting an Apple will be hard. But once they figure that out, and I'm sure they will, big, powerful company, lots of money, I think we'll start to see some of that game stuff pay off because that is the future of all games and the entire market is headed there. There was a moment on the call last night, uh, John, I thought of you. Uh, Reed Hastings was asked about a metaverse question, gaming, and he answered, he said, we'll definitely crawl, walk, run, and let's nail the thing, saying that they're moving into the space and maybe come back when they have more to talk about. So some of that skepticism there. But I wonder, you know, to be a tech company versus a media company, to your point, Julia, you got to have these other businesses, right? You got to have gamer, you got to have cloud, you got to have services, a higher margin business. And John, Jim Cramer brought up this idea this morning that maybe it should have been Netflix that acquired Activision Blizzard <laughs> to get more of a footprint in gaming or metaverse or whatever you want to or don't want to call it. Yeah, that would be a really big bite to swallow when you think about 70 billion with the market cap that Netflix has. Um, I, I wonder, uh, Neelai, strategically, um, is Netflix, you think, in a difficult spot or is kind of overall market hand-wringing and possibly even a valuation reset making this look like something that it might not be? I mean, do, do you worry about Netflix in terms of how it's executing technologically, the experience, uh, the, the competence of the company, or, or not? I think the big question for Netflix is, can they execute the gaming strategy? Hmm. On the media side, I think the question is, can they be perceived as delivering quality on par with Disney, right? That's the big question for almost every company in streaming. And, you know, they're working their way up there. 
on the tech side, they're just way ahead of the game. Every other streaming app is kind of bad. Like, it's just the truth. Like, using HBO Max is not a great experience for a lot of people. So I think on the tech and design side, Netflix remains far ahead as a company that operates like a tech company that believes in software to make the company more efficient their way ahead. The real thing is, can they execute their way into a market like gaming that is notoriously difficult and in the middle of a paradigm shift to game streaming, yeah. where Netflix should have a lot of expertise, but no one has really pulled it off yet. Not yet. I uh, also want to get your take on Peloton. Yesterday, CNBC reported the company is going to pause production of key bikes and treadmills, the stock plummeting more than 20%. Now, we have seen production pauses in other sectors, too, as companies grapple with shortages. But the supply chain isn't to blame here. It's a lack of demand that's the issue for Peloton. Uh, Peloton co-founder and CEO John Foley responded in a letter to employees in which he said, rumors that we are halting all production of bikes and treads are false. Notice that word, all. Foley added that the company is resetting our production levels for sustainable growth. Uh, nevertheless, investors not showing a lot of demand for the stock. Uh, well, let me see. Is it up 8% uh, right now? Uh, well, we'll see. Current levels overall, though, if you look at the trend, we'll take it below that 2019 IPO price of $29. Does this make it a vulnerable target for acquisition? The information floating Apple as an obvious buyer. Neelai, Apple doesn't buy stuff this big. Uh, you know, Beats was like a huge buy for them at like $3 billion or something. But not to say they wouldn't do it, but it would be highly unusual, right? Yeah, and, you know, they could buy this with pocket change. But then what would you what would you have bought? You've bought a company in some amount of turmoil that completely misforecasted demand. That's the big pandemic bet, right? It's not that demand is zero. It's that they bought too much. They bought pre-core. They created way too much supply. And they can't meet whatever demand returned to normal. And then there's no tech there that Apple can't but, build itself. They already have Fitness Plus. So I, I don't know why they would buy that. Yeah, but but Neela, you know, we talk so much about Apple as turning itself into a health company and all the health capabilities on the watch, et cetera, which of course already does integrate with the bike. Isn't this an opportunity for them to sort of jump frog, leapfrog where they are in the health space without having to build all this tech itself? And if not Apple, is there another company that you think should look at Peloton? Uh, yeah, I, again, I just I don't think Apple is the sort of company that that buys something you can so easily build itself. And, you know, the, the biggest asset Peloton has is its instructors, which Apple can just hire. So I there's just a part of me that says this doesn't feel right for a company like Apple. I do see um, a lot of consolidation in this space. There is Hydro. There is Tonal. People love Tonals. Um, you can see Peloton trying to execute some kind of roll-up strategy uh, with an infusion of cash and try to stake out that diversified product. They need to get to software margins. Peloton's product or Peloton's revenue is not bikes, right? It is subscriptions to those bikes. Mm -hmm. They need to start leaning on that and saying, okay, and almost anybody can subscribe. We can use distribution across multiple kinds of products to get the revenue we need. It's not, I, I think they got to get away from the idea that what they sell is bikes. 
Yeah, Neela, I'm, I'm totally with you. I keep asking sort of what is the proprietary technology that Peloton has? Yes, they have that subscription revenue. Maybe the talent is Apple going to shell out for Cody Rigsby and Jess Sims. I'm not sure. Perhaps the better question, though, and the better suitor could be a Nike or a Lululemon, right, that doesn't, like, unlike an Apple, doesn't really have tight control in the same way of their supply chains. And we know that Lululemon is interested in this space. They bought Mirror is it down there? Could Peloton be part of a more complete offering? But perhaps those are better names to look at? Yeah, I, I think almost any of those companies that wants a presence in your home and a deep recurring revenue stream uh, has good reason to look at Peloton. I think the, the real question is, can Peloton turn that recurring revenue stream into growth? Right. And to do that, they got to get away from the idea that all they sell is a $1,500 bike. They got to get into other devices to to make that uh, to make that subscription more valuable to existing customers who are all diehards, right? It's not like people stop loving their Pelotons. It's not like people stop loving Cody Rigsby, right? So you got to get more money out of your existing base and you got to grow the base by making the on-ramp to that subscription revenue a lot easier. And I think Peloton totally misjudged the pandemic and thought, okay, what people want is $1,500 bicycles. Yeah, and it's tough to have a lot of inventory of something that big, that heavy, and that expensive uh, we'll see how they work it out. Neil, I thank you. Thanks, so. Al. And Peloton shares may be up today, but Netflix shares are still down about 23%, weighing down the market. The Nasdaq is lower, lower now, one point third now 13 percent off its high in november excuse me um and our mike santoli is here with more on this sell-off getting deeper mike what are you seeing right now yeah julia what started of course with some of the smaller and high momentum stocks has really fully reached the upper reaches of the nasdaq the nasdaq 100 if you had a hundred dollars a year ago you spread it equally among the 100 stocks in the nasdaq 100 you now have a hundred dollars because that's basically dead flat with the equal weighted um uh, NASDAQ 100. Now, what accounts for the plus 10% for the market cap weighted version? Well, of course, Apple, Microsoft, and Alphabet, for the most part, have carried it there, as well as Tesla, on a 12-month basis. So that's kind of where we are right now. This spread is getting pretty wide, and I think you're seeing some interesting action in the market today. Of course, Netflix is a massive uh, negative impact on the subsector here, on streaming, on video. It's not necessarily causing people to say that somehow it's game over for larger Fang. Netflix, always a little bit of an outlier when it came to Fang as a, as a kind of direct-to-consumer subscription business anyway. Uh, but I do think that you can sort of look right now to see if we're seeing kind of green shoots in some of the larger stocks that end up getting uh, some kind of attraction as the overall S&P 500 hit its 200-day moving average for the first time in, you know, a year and a half or more. Uh, and so those things, I, I think, are the kind of back and forth where we're still trying to figure out, have people sold enough of the risky winners of 2021 and 2020. Yeah, it's a it's a question we all want to know. Uh, Mike, thanks so much. Great perspective. Yeah. Coming up on the show still, Airbnb CEO Brian Chesky, live from his Airbnb. An exclusive sound from Intel CEO Pat Gelsinger. And everybody on Wall Street turns bearish on Netflix. A big hour of tech check is just getting started. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. 
edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. Writer's block. Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. Canva. Time now for a gut check. City slashing price targets on a pair of big software names, Microsoft and ServiceNow. Microsoft is down about 10% in 2022. City cutting its price target from 407 to 376 to reflect lower commercial PC numbers and overall value compression. Still rating the stock a buy, though, expecting strength in the enterprise sector. A similar story for ServiceNow, multiple compression leading City to lower its price target, this time from 770 to 657, maintaining a buy rating as well, projecting sustained top line growth and margin expansion. City still calls the software from one of their top large cap picks. Shares are down roughly 20% year to date, John. Yes, and meanwhile, Intel announcing it will invest at least $20 billion to build a pair of new chip plants outside Columbus, Ohio, saying it could grow that location into the largest silicon manufacturing location on the planet. I spoke with CEO Pat Gelsinger earlier this morning, asked him to what degree he expects these new plants will feed chip demand for industries, specifically autos, that have historically used older process technology. Take a listen. If you think about the car, you know, today, a premium car, about 4% semiconductors. By 2030, it'll be about 20% semiconductors, so a 5x increase. And most of that expansion is in areas like autonomous driving, uh, advanced uh, infotainment, uh, 5 and 6G communications capabilities, electric vehicle capabilities. So much of that 5X growth is actually the car becoming more modern. As I've described it, you know, the car is becoming a computer with tires. I also asked him how this announcement fits into Intel's broader strategy and other variables like this pending $52 billion in funding for the CHIPS Act, which Congress has not yet approved. We need this capacity, period. And even if it's just for the Intel products, you know, we would be announcing this site today. You know, we, we believe that there's uh, simply so much demand for our products. But when we uh, look at our foundry business, hmm, you know, we're going to run wafers for our products as well as our foundry customers at this location. So we need it for that reason as well. We also, as we said, with the Chips Act, we said, you know, we're going to build this site, period but it's gonna be bigger and faster with the support of the CHIPS Act. We're again, putting our chips on the table. The say-do ratio is high. We need their support to go bigger and faster to restore this industry on American soil. 3,000 Intel jobs initially, 7,000 construction jobs, Julia. That's why he's in DC. President Biden, of course, wants to uh, talk about this and wrap himself in some of this glory. 
Yeah, and I think we will be hearing from President Biden shortly. But one thing I think is so interesting, John, is just remembering the timeline for this. So they start production on the facility at the end of this year, but they're not going to actually be producing chips until 2025. With that in mind, I'm wondering what you think about how this puts them on a timeline to really do the turnaround that Gelsinger has talked so much about. Well, first off, 2025, not that far away. So if they can get this done and actually be in production at that site in 25, amazing. Uh, D, I, I think this lines up really well with what Gelsinger has said the timeline is for them fixing process technology and being in the business of building up foundries. So if this, in fact, comes online in time, it'll be right around the time when they should be ready to have some competitive uh, chips technologically coming out of that. And uh, I believe we've got the president uh, who's getting ready to speak in a moment. Uh, this is the Commerce Secretary, it looks like, yeah. who, uh, who was warming it up. Dee, um, th this, this is uh, the, the timeline that Gelsinger was talking about. Now there's a very mm -hmm. clear uh, physical commitment backing that up. Yeah. And John, it rests on the assumption that demand is going to stay strong two, three years, four years in the future. Um, I know that you often ask chip CEOs, you know, what the potential of a glut is, but we don't hear that as much anymore. Everyone seems to say, and Gelsinger himself said that, you know, cars are going to be computers on wheels. Is there still that risk, though? And where does that sort of leave Intel, which is catching up in the foundry space? Well, I think that depends on a number of things that I'm not sure investors would consider, and that is how cutting edge is the process technology, right? Qualcomm has already said they're interested in what Intel has shown them and their plans for their leading edge process that they would have coming out of a fab like this. Amazon is already also committed to working with them on foundries. So if Intel can produce high quality chip design and produce it at volume uh, to that degree. There's not a ton of competition for the best, right? If they, in fact, can produce the best. Also, if you think about overall chip industry capacity, there's you know lower process technology, the stuff that, say, Global Foundries tends to focus on. Right now, Julia, uh, that stuff is what the car industry, the auto industry tends to use. If, as Pat is projecting, uh, the silicon, high-end silicon uh, design uh, uptake of the auto industry tends toward the high end going forward, then that, again, could be interesting for them. Yeah, certainly something to watch. And we are going to continue to monitor this event, and we will take you to the president when he starts speaking. Tech Tech will be back after a very quick break. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Ooh. Summarize with AI in a click. Click, click, click. Writer's block? Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Tech Check. Approaching uh, the bottom of the hour, I'm John Fort with Deirdre Bosa 
and Julia Borston. We continue to monitor uh, remarks about uh, chip manufacturing in D.C. That's Intel CEO Pat Gelsinger uh, at the lectern right now. We expect to hear from President Biden before too long. But before that, a news update. Rahel Solomon has that for us. Rahel. I sure do. Hi, John. And here's what's happening at this hour. With the major averages down again today, Treasury yields are pulling back sharply from recent highs. The 10-year is down eight basis points to about one and three quarters of percent. And the two-year note has slipped back below one percent. The big gathering of business and political leaders in Davos, Switzerland, will be held in May this year. The World Economic Forum has been postponed due to rising Omicron cases. Redfin says that housing costs were sharply higher in December. Nationwide, average monthly listed rents jumped 14 percent over the last year. That is the biggest increase in more than two years. Austin, Texas, saw the biggest increase with rents up 40 percent since last December. Redfin says that the average monthly mortgage payment rose nearly 22 percent in the last year. And it is a banner year for partners at Goldman Sachs and some other Wall Street firms. Goldman's compensation pool for investment bankers rose 40 to 50 percent this year. Some partners in tech and healthcare are reportedly making between 12 and 15 million dollars. Go to CNBC.com for more on the surge in pay and bonuses. Julia, I'll send it back to you. Thank you. Thank you, Rahel. Let's turn back to Netflix. That stock down about 22%. Our next guest, a bear turning more bearish, cutting his price target on the stock from $460 to $375 post-earnings. Joining us now, Moffat Nathanson, founding partner, Michael Nathanson. Michael, thanks so much for joining us. A fascinating note that you wrote about uh, these numbers and also that that earnings call with the executives lay out for us how you see the lower than expected guidance for the first quarter, giving you insight into the rest of the year. Okay. Thanks for having me, by the way. Um, it's mystifying because they talked so much about the great content slate in the fourth quarter and there was no carryover, right? It's, it's, it just says to me, it's the risk of the model. Um, it relies on so much new content. And then into that also the idea of the price increase, perhaps slowing down growth and maybe creating an upper limit on pricing power, right? So I think that guide on first quarter sub ads and then margin, that was a big shock, obviously. And what we don't know is with the year starting off so slowly on subscriber growth, how 2022 will end up, right? And typically first quarter is a strong quarter, second quarter is a weak quarter. So, Julia, just bring this doubt about like where 22 will be on subscriber growth and revenues and ultimately long-term margins. So there's a lot of risk in what we just learned about the first quarter that I would say is still not even in the stock. Even though it's down a lot, there's still probably more risk in the stock than people realize at this point. Interesting. You know, it, it was it was fascinating to hear Ted Sarandos, co-CEO, yesterday talk about how he thinks that people are going to start to realize that Netflix has one great big movie launching every week, and they start to see that as a key part of the value proposition. And yet in your note, you talk about the rapid decay of the value of content because people are just going through it so quickly. How do you see Netflix's content investment changing? Are they going to have to spend even more than they're already planning to spend? I saw an estimate of $19 billion this year. Yeah, that's that's a good question. So I think what's happening and why they're pivoting the film is that when you put out a series, those shows get consumed when they get they get binged in a night. And when you put out a series, there's a lot of there's a lot of risk to it. You don't know the next Squid Game or Stranger Things. You just don't. Those shows just get thrown against the wall and they pop, they pop. 
But with film, you can pay up for movie stars. And the things that work, and they called out, have all big name stars. So I think what they may be realizing without saying it is the only way we can actually like, you know, create sticky content that doesn't decay in a night, uh, it doesn't fail is by paying up for, for big names, Julia. So I think to me, that's, you know, that's kind of the story here is that the fade on new content is so high and it seems like almost like a random walk, what works, what doesn't work. That film is probably a safer, but more expensive way to build a model, right? But the movies have to be good, right? You have to, even though you have the big names, they have to be good. And that's film business, as you know, is also a hit and miss. Michael, here's what I don't get at this point, And it has to do with how Netflix should be valued. When does leverage come to this model? At some point, do they have to spend less on content and they can just sort of reap a benefit like Disney style? Once you got Mickey Mouse, you don't have to reinvent Mickey Mouse every quarter or spend a billion dollars on Mickey Mouse. Mickey's just Mickey and people come to the parks and wear the ears and he's, he's printing cash. When does Netflix's Mickey Mouse happen? Well, John, the question is, does streaming allow for the next Mickey Mouse, right? Like the Squid Game just so third quarter that there's no collectibles for, you know, for Squid Game. Like that's my, that's been my concern all along is that I just think that the streaming model doesn't allow for those franchises to be built, right? There's just a quick, quick decay. And if I was a media company, to your point, I would lean in as Disney has into Marvel, Pixar, Lucas, because those franchises have already been built, right? So I think your question goes to the heart of this transition and whether or not streaming is a good model versus the linear model. That's always been my concern. So if you start slowing down content spending when everyone else is raising content spending, by nature, the risk is that you'll have less hits, right? So when people say, hey, the bull cases, they'll spend less on content and drive higher prices. Well, how is that? How's that possible, right? When everyone else is spending right. more money on content, you know, so it's kind of kind of like a catch 22, right, Michael? I mean, if streaming is fundamentally not a good business, then what is what should Netflix's next act be, whether that be gaming, merchandise or experiences? How does it get there organically or does it need to do more M&A as we see more tech do M&A? We thought they would go after an Activision, right? The CEO, the CFO at Netflix was the CFO at Activision. That stock, you know, in our world was very cheap. We had to buy on it. It was, it was a painful watch can fall. But we thought M&A into things like gaming because there's IP there. There's a whole new user base, transition to mobile. Like we thought that it was a potential path for Netflix. That's not the path they can't buy Activision. Uh, but you would think, look, add advertising, add live sports. You know, the, the definition of their content and their monetization may be too narrow. And they've said no, no, no. But perhaps you add an ad tier, you add sports, and you try to you know expand the TAM that looks like it's hitting the ceiling right now. Yeah, but all that content is very expensive, Michael. It'll be very interesting to see if some of these trends are also reflected in the other streamers as they report their earnings. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks. And now, as we mentioned, the president taking the lectern a moment ago at the White House, making some remarks on American chip manufacturing. Let's listen in. It's historic investment for Ohio, one of the largest investment in semiconductor manufacturing in American history. A brand new $20 billion campus outside of Columbus, Ohio. 7,000 construction jobs. 
3,000 full-time jobs. And I was kidding Pat earlier. I said, I may need a job. And he, he said, well, it's not bad. You start over 100,000 bucks on the lineup, but I got to get some training. But look, at, 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 at the singular, look, to be able to say, made in Ohio, made in America, is what we used to always be able to say 25, 30 years ago. That's what this is about. But folks at home might be wondering, why is such a big deal for manufacturing something so small, the size of a postage stamp? Why is that so important? Well, semiconductors are small computer chips that power virtually everything in our lives. Your phone, your car, your refrigerator, your washing machine, hospital equipment, the internet, the electric grid, and so much more. And here's the deal. America invented these chips. America invented these chips. And federal research and development led to the creation of these chips. Taxpayer dollars. These chips helped power NASA mission to the moon. The federal investment helped bring down the cost of making chips to build a market and an entire industry. As a result, over 30 years ago, America had about 40% of global production. But since that time, something happened. American manufacturing, the backbone of our economy, got hollowed out. Companies moved jobs and production overseas, especially from in the industrial Midwest. Decades ago, we used to invest 2% of our gross domestic product in research and development. Let me say it again. We invested 2% decades ago of our gross domestic product in pure research and development. Today, it's less than 1%. We were ranked number one in the world in R&D. But guess what? We now rank number nine. China was number eight in the world three decades ago. Now they're number two. And other countries are closing in fast. As a result, today, we barely produce 10% of the computer chips despite being the leader in chip design and research. And we don't have the ability to make the most advanced chips now, right now. But today, 75% of the production takes place in East Asia. 90% of the most advanced chips are made in Taiwan. China is doing everything it can to take over the global market so they can uh, try to outcompete the rest of us and have a lot of applications, including military applications. Folks, look, during this pandemic, your pocketbook felt the consequences, inflation, higher prices. Whenever a factory shuts down in one part of the world, the production and shipments of goods to shops and homes and business all over the world gets disrupted. COVID-19 has compounded that problem many times over, especially with these computer chips. As a result, everything from cars to dishwashers are delayed getting to showrooms and customers, just as demand for them is up because the economy is growing. And because supply is low, because supply is low, we find ourselves in a position that we're really behind the curve. Prices are going up. In fact, one-third of the recent price increases that have been seen nationally are due to car prices, as mentioned earlier. You know, can I, I'm going to turn to the boss here. What percentage of chips are needed to build the cars today, and what's going to happen in the next five, ten years? Four percent today, 20 percent by 2030. 20 percent by 2030 is going to be required to... That's, that's, that's what the car is made of. 20% of it is going to be these computer chips. Historic as today's announcement is, 
We need to be, this is just the beginning. And this is an important part of today's message. Right now, there's a bill in front of the United States Congress because the two men behind me are pushing it. U.S. Innovation and Competition Act, which includes several of the ideas I proposed last year that would accelerate the progress in a big way. The bill calls for authorizing nearly $90 billion for research and development, manufacturing, and supply chain. Look, including empowering the National Science Foundation to bring together local communities, universities, community colleges, private companies, and more and more partnerships like this. And by the way, speaking of community colleges, you all know this, the, the Washington Press Corps does at least. My wife is a community college professor. She said it's the best kept secret in America. This is a community college graduate who skipped his senior year in high school, went to local community college, and then went on. My wife's got to meet you, man. <laughs> Look, this includes a $52 billion incentive for more companies to build their manufacturing facility here in the United States of America. I want other cities and states to be able to make announcements like the one being made here today. And that's why I want to see Congress pass this bill right away and get it to my desk. Let's get another historic piece of bipartisan legislation done. Let's do it for the sake of our economic competitiveness and our national security. Let's do it for the cities and towns all across America working to get their piece of the global economic package. And let's do it for the dignity and pride of this country and the American worker. I made clear while I was running for president and from day one of this administration, we are going to invest in America. We're investing in American workers. We're going to stamp everything we can made in America, especially these computer chips. Vice President Harris and I, along with Secretary Armando and our entire team, have met with members of Congress in both parties because this is a bipartisan issue. We brought business and labor together to see where we could ramp up production and help resolve bottlenecks. Soon after I was sworn in, I signed an executive order to revitalize American manufacturing and making our supply chains more resilient to disruptions, whether it's a pandemic, climate change, or cyber attacks. In some cases, building resilience will mean increasing our production here at home. In others, will mean working more closely with our trusted friends and partners, nations that share our values so that the supply chains do not get used against us as leverage. In fact, I made this clear to President Xi of China. We need not have confrontation, but we have a stiff economic and technological competition, and we're going to insist everyone, including China, play by the same rules. We're going to invest whatever it takes in America, in American innovation, in American communities, the president, American workers. The president there talking about bringing more chip manufacturing back to American soil with Intel. We will continue to monitor that. Meanwhile, up next on Tech Check, Airbnb CEO Brian Chesky is here live from Atlanta on the first stop of his journey staying in the short-term rentals. Don't go anywhere. We will be right back. Amid the recent sell-off and growth names, Airbnb has been a bit more resilient, shares negative on the year, but outperforming the NASDAQ and certainly some of the other high-growth names. Now CEO and co-founder Brian Chesky is living the bull case, announcing on Twitter that he will be living and working from Airbnbs for the coming weeks as longer-term stays make up more bookings on the platform. As of last quarter, about 20% of nights booked for were for stays of a month or longer. 
Let's bring in Brian Chesky, who joins us from Atlanta, from his first Airbnb. I'm, I'm digging the posters and the music vibe in the background, uh, Brian. Let me ask you very generally, the market seems to be signaling that the story for high growth stay-at-home stocks, names like Zoom and DocuSign, Peloton, that that story is over. Do you think that what you're doing, this idea of decentralized living, will keep pandemic trends in place uh, for a long time to come, what kind of technology are you using? Do you expect to use on this journey? Yeah, it's a great question, Deidre. Um, um, well, first of all, yeah, I'm I'm in an Airbnb here in Atlanta. Um, these are posters of uh, San Francisco street posters behind me. Um, I would say that you know the the world is never going back to the way it was before the pandemic, and I don't think most people are going back to an office five days a week. And if they're not going to back to an office five days a week, then I think what we're going to see is permanent flexibility. And that means that millions of people, not everyone, but a large chunk of people can now go anywhere, anytime. And the reason why is because they can do what I can do. I'm running a pretty large company off of a laptop with another person's Wi-Fi in their home. And so if I can do my job from a house mm -hmm. in Atlanta, that means a lot of people can travel all over the world and, and live, not just travel and maybe now live on Airbnb. So I think this is just the beginning. And the only other thing I'll say is there is a huge boon that's going to be coming to Airbnb. Before the pandemic, half our business was cross-border. As borders do reopen, that will be another tailwind for us. So, Brian, what kind of future services get built into or onto this new way of traveling and living? Obviously, there are tax implications of what you're doing and what you hope others will continue to do. Uh, that is living out of state or overseas. Does Airbnb think about a tax service or perhaps an acquisition in this space? Uh, what are some of the other businesses that you might be thinking about to expand on this theme? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, as you said, a fifth of our business by nights um, in Q3 were monthly stays. Nearly half our business is for stays of longer than a week. And people are now going to thousands of communities all over the world. So what we are focused on this year is we want to make the experience of living on Airbnb, whether it's a family going away for the summer, people taking long weekends, or people even living on Airbnb full time. We wanna make that experience much better. And part of that is me living on Airbnb and understanding the experience myself so we can really understand this product. And so I think you're gonna see some really big products for us coming out this summer in time for this coming travel season. I can't disclose what it's gonna be, but there are gonna be some really big new improvements <laughs> and upgrades. Can can you give us any hints? What are you thinking about as you travel? Is it taxes? Is it sort of a short-term lease? Any hints there? Um, I, I just think we want to make it significantly easier for people to be able to understand what communities they can go to and live in and make the experience as smooth, as frictionless, as easy as possible and provide incredible service each step of the way. So we're thinking about an entire end-to-end -end solution to really make living on Airbnb much easier. And again, living could be months at a time, but could just be a, a week, which really falls beyond what classic travel is. Typical travel is a few nights in another destination. We really wanna help you live in a community. Yeah, it's so interesting. You're talking so much about living in Airbnb, and I'm wondering what that means for the sort of more traditional going on vacation with Airbnb, taking a trip with Airbnb. And, you know, we've seen a surge in bookings for the traditional hotels, uh, and we've seen those stocks go up in, in line with that. I'm wondering if you don't see them as much as your competition. Are they taking back share from maybe some of the business you had during the pandemic, or where does that give and take go from here? 
No, I mean, we are still going to have hundreds of millions of people in the coming years traveling on Airbnb. That is still our bread and butter. It's just that there's this whole new segment that is completely additive. Again, wait till borders reopen. The vast majority of our business before the pandemic was people crossing borders, traveling to cities. That business has been suppressed. When people get comfortable traveling and crossing borders, that's going to be a huge boon for our business. I think that because people have more flexibility, they can travel anywhere, they can live anywhere. Living is a huge new opportunity for us, but travel is still in our bread and butter, and we are still very focused on it, and I'm very bullish about it. Hey, Brian, just a, just a couple of uh, quick, super practical questions. One, yeah. do the Airbnb hosts know that the Brian that they are leasing to is Brian Chesky? Do they find that out at any point? Uh, and then you're running the company off of Airbnb uh, Wi-Fi. How are you making sure that Wi-Fi is secure? Yeah, so um, my host found out who I was because I called her a couple nights ago and said, you know, I'm going to be on CBS show with Gail King. Um, how would you feel about your living room being seen by two and a half million people? By the way, I'm the founder of Airbnb. So that's how I told her. Um, I usually don't go out of my way to tell people who I am. I don't really want to like be a secret shopper, but I also want to get a real experience, not an experience that's only curated for me because I'm the founder and CEO. So I'd say half the time they discover who I am, half the time they don't. As far as like internet security, um, you know, I have a team that like does a lot of thorough checks. But you know, I, I do think that for the vast majority of people, being able to book a home in Airbnb and, 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 and log on to a local Wi-Fi is going to be pretty safe for them. And we have additional security protocols that we look into. Uh, Brian, I, I hope I hope you warn them about CNBC or CNBC interview as well. Is this a different? No, oh, this yeah. is still your first one. So you're making this yeah. Airbnb famous. Um, <laughs> Brian, there's this idea, too, that I know during the pandemic, you guys really scaled back on your marketing budget. And I think you said that it would never <laughs> get as high as it was pre-pandemic. Some of the sort of operational efficiency that we've seen a lot of companies do over the pandemic. This seems to be part of it. You are sort of promoting the Airbnb lifestyle and you have other ways of doing that, such as the home alone house or the sex in the city house um, apartment, rather. How is that affecting your bottom line? And is it as effective as some of the more traditional ways of marketing? Oh, absolutely. I mean, Deirdre, um, we built our brand primarily off of PR and word of mouth because this Airbnb's brand was primarily built before we even had enough money to market. Well, I think one of the things the pandemic showed is our brand is a noun and a verb, and it's used in countries all over the world. I mean, Airbnb is synonymous with the category of travel. And we got to do the experiment that every marketer wished they could do. What happens if you turn 100% of your marketing budget off? And what we found is that our traffic came back to 95% of the levels when we were actually fully marketing and advertising. And I think it just showed how strong our brand is. And our brand is strong because we have something unique that you really can't get anywhere else. And so we're never going to forget those lessons. We don't intend to ever spend the same amount of marketing as a percentage of revenue, but we're going to still market because we want to invest in our brand. But our marketing is going to be primarily marketing new products and new offerings, not just raising awareness for our brand, because most people now heard about it and they have a deep emotional connection to it. And so things like, you know, Speak. we do promotions like we have the home alone house that you could stay in on Airbnb. And this to me is marketing the product. It's not just doing ads about Airbnb. It's really highlighting what makes Airbnb special. 
Speaking of other offerings, tell us what's going on with your experiences business. If there is a rebound as people feel more comfortable interacting with other people and how important you see experiences being, especially in the summer. And if at some point you'll start to break out those revenues. Yeah. I mean, it is really important to our future. I thought it was going to be a huge breakout product before the pandemic. But then of course, with the pandemic, we had to put the product on pause. We are now seeing a lot of growth in the experiences business. And the reason why is I think a lot of people are realizing you can only stay home and watch so many shows on Netflix. Eventually, you got to get out of the house and have a real experience. And I think a lot of people are you know, doing it not only when they travel, but we're seeing people do experiences in their own city. It's a great way to meet people and have a really great activity. And I think that this summer, a lot of people are going to be choosing Airbnb. And when you go to a new community especially a smaller community, they may not have big museums to go to. And so experiences is a great activity to do. And so it's going to be a big part of our future. Hey, Brian, you asked the Twitterverse a few weeks ago for ideas as to what Airbnb could launch in the coming year. And you said that the top suggestion you got was crypto payments. Uh, How are you thinking about that? Are you any closer than I know I always ask you about this the last time we talked? We are absolutely looking into it. It is the most common requested feature, certainly on Twitter. And um, I'm I'm very interested in the space, certainly. Um, I think there's a lot of commonalities between what people are excited about with cryptocurrency and why people are excited about Airbnb. You know, this idea of, uh, uh, you know, kind of you know, distributed ownership, the idea that people can build wealth. And um, I think Airbnb is a great way to obviously do that. And so I think it's a really interesting opportunity for us. We're certainly looking into it. I don't have anything to announce, but I can assure people that we are absolutely investigating it. At the same time, Brian, you've expressed a bit of skepticism on the idea of Web3, the ethos there being decentralization. So how do you balance that? And what exactly are you skeptical about? I... um, I, I'm, I'm generally very open-minded, actually, about the technology, and I think that it's really, really exciting. I think we should be careful about saying that, like, it, everything is going to change all at once. You know, I think that ultimately, everything we do, we have to remember, we have to, every one of us has to provide a great service at a great value, and regardless of technology, we cannot forget those core principles. And so that's the key thing to me is just to make sure whatever new technology we're using, it's our job to build practical utilities that add value to people. That's the name of the game, whatever technologies we're using. Okay, Brian, thank you. Looking forward to seeing what your next stop is. Uh, talk to you again soon. Brian Chesky, CEO and co-founder of Airbnb. We should also note that Airbnb is a former CNBC Disruptor 50 company. And of course, CNBC is now accepting nominations for the 10th annual Disruptor 50 list. To nominate your company, simply scan that QR code on your screen or go to cnbc.com disruptors for more information. John? I'll also note that uh, when I stare at an Airbnb, I don't tell people who I am. Of course, people don't care who I am, but I don't tell them. <laughs> anyway, Bill Big Tech fighting against regulatory scrutiny. We will walk you through the latest lobbying numbers after one more quick break. One more thing, newly released Q4 lobbying disclosures reveal big tech is ramping up its spending in Washington. The top spender, what you'd expect, Meta, Facebook, outpacing the likes of Amazon, Microsoft, Alphabet and Apple, spending nearly $20.1 million on lobbying last year. Amazon close behind, weighing in with around $19.3 million. Microsoft reporting more than $10 million as well. 
Those totals come just a day after the Senate Judiciary Committee voted to advance antitrust legislation and, of course, the Biden administration and FTC Chair Lena Khan signaling it would push for more regulation as well. Julia. Well, one thing I think is interesting is while there is this bipartisan push for more regulation, one thing that those lobbyists are talking about is the fact that there shouldn't be so much regulation because of the very thing that President Biden was talking about, which was competition with China D. So I think we're going to hear more about that. Yeah, and we've got more earnings on tap, so we'll listen out for any comments there. Microsoft and IBM on deck next week. That said, guys, have a great weekend. NASDAQ down about 1%. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.